Literature by Irvin S. Cobb, August 31, 1912, Saturday Evening Post. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. When you start to consider it from all sides, literature turns out to be considerable of a proposition. What with first one thing and then another, and a presidential year is an excellent time for taking up the subject. In a presidential year, nature as well as man becomes literary. There is always the peculiar spotted spider mentioned in the special dispatch from North Colbert, Connecticut, which weaves into its web the name of the Republican candidate, all written out so plainly that it can be readily read by anybody except a confirmed and unpleasant Democrat. And there is, belonging to an old southern family in Alabama, the common but patriotic Dominique Hinn that lays a double-yoked egg with the initials of the Democratic nominee on the lower end of it. Likewise, the customary output of light fiction is greatly enhanced and enriched by the statements of the opposing campaign managers. Within the last couple of years also, a newer note has crept into our periodical literature. Every few minutes, seems like, you pick up a magazine and find in it a short story entitled, let us say, Everybody's Doing It, and beginning substantially as follows. Speaking of Leander naturally suggests Hellespont, and speaking of either one or both naturally suggests the hero of this tale. His first name was Leander, and he came from Hellespont, South Carolina. O reader, seek not for Hellespont in the list of American municipalities large enough to have a Carnegie library and a craft investigation. The postal guide mentions it with ill-feigned reluctance in small type, and in the railroad timetable it is indicated by a cipher, meaning stops on signal only. Approaching it, the locomotive of the Fru Limited utters a loud and apprehensive shriek as though fearing it might break down and have to spend an hour there. Yet several bright people have come from Hellespont. The brighter they were, the quicker they came, and our hero, Leander, was one of the first. Our hero, I say, but on first blush there was nothing about his appearance to suggest the hero, absolutely nothing. His face consisted of the customary number of comparatively unimportant features, arranged in the conventional manner, and he spoke in a way of speaking. His hair was cut like a retail shoe dealer's from the central part of Ohio, but on the other hand he wore the necktie of a collector for an installment house, while his hat was similar to that of a traveling canvasser selling the life of Lincoln in nine volumes. His name was such as you would hear paged in a hotel lobby at Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, or Little Rock, Arkansas. It was L.A. Blip. The L standing for Leander, and the A standing for Absalom, and Blip standing for both of them. Such, in short, is my hero, a man with a plain eye and an ear such as no stranger would pick in a crowd. And up until a few minutes ago, when I started this story, Nothing had ever happened to him except being born, etc. He was a composite photograph of Jack Robinson, John Doe, and the late Solomon Grundy. He was one in a thousand, the last one. His life from A to Z was an open book, only you would not have opened it. I started to say from Alpha to Omega instead of A to Z, 
as sounding classier and classical but desisted from doing so for fear the editor might accuse me of trying to slip in a free reading notice for family foodstuffs and household urgents n b if the preceding paragraph is omitted upon publication the reader may know that i was accused anyhow enter now the other or female half of the sketch she is of the elect of the universe she has done things she is the sole author of two successful problem novels and a salad dressing and collaborator in a popular divorce suit yourself she is either a ravishing blonde or a soulful brunette with slow eyes s l o e not s l o w tastes differ in these matters and last year's blonde is this year's brunette speaking calmly and dispassionately i will merely state that she is a strong combination of desdemona the original smothered chicken helen of troy new york or greece and the kind of girl drawn by mr c d gibson author of the noted shirtwaist she too came from elsewhere she came from dowagiac if you cannot pronounce dowagiac make it espalanti or any of those other michigan towns that have fishing tackle named for them but when the action of this story starts she is seated in a broadway restaurant at six fifteen p m of a summer day just as the well-known sun is sinking according to custom and the almanac in the esteemed west and she is engaged in consuming a light repast of the fruits of the season consisting of one olive out of a bronx and one cherry out of a dry manhattan students of civic conditions may draw a lesson from the fact that chicago has a fire named after it while the provinces of new york are perpetuated in cocktails making two sips of the cherry she raises her light or dark eyes as the case may be and approaching her she sees but why should i continue to quote farther along this strain if you are a regular reader of the fiction of the hour you must know ere you have got this far that you have encountered the latest brainchild of some one or another of the forty thousand bright observant young men and women in this country upon whom the mantle of o henry descended as mantles go this is one of the roomiest and most commodious mantles we have there are forty thousand under it now and there is room for forty thousand more ever since o henry died the crop of o henryized stories is the one crop that has never failed us were i a critic of literature i would say o henry himself was a solitary leviathan of the vasty deeps while the subsequent sharers of the mantle run in schools and spawn close to shore and before changing the subject i might also say that it seemed to me that too strong an admixture of the o h essence was likely to result in a decided preponderance of h2o which as any chemist will tell you means something decidedly thin and waterish but who am i that i should say these things i am no critic of literature that is a vocation for other and weightier intellects than mine there are several things that i know about but literature is not one of them i know for example that the civil war was partly brought on by slavery and partly by secession 
and partly by a yankee who came south in the julep season of eighteen sixty and insisted on crushing a mint i know why a hen lays one egg and cackles an hour and a shad lays a couple of hundred thousand and never says a word about it i know why the robins go south in the fall and the ball players in the spring and why it used to be that a boy with a john henry face and a plain bub figure was always christened a fancy name and condemned to wear those little short pantalroy clothes these are all of them puzzles of natural and profane history to the solving of which i have given years of study but i am not so well up on literature i judge this is the result of my early training or the lack of it yet in the days of my youth every effort was made to give me a correct taste in reading and to ballast my mind with the right kind of books i guess though the foundations were too heavy for the top structure they were beginning to pull out a plum and make it sag down at one end like a fireman's hat as soon as i had outgrown the sunday school style of books kind adult friends took me in hand and undertook to start me upon the proper course in these matters they recommended to me a course of reading that not one of them would have waded through himself not if you paid him day wages he wouldn't but they were willing that i who had never done them any harm should sweat and suffer over gibbon's rome while in my secret soul i fairly ached to know whether long john silver got the treasure and what became of ben gunn and how the fight at the stockade turned out there are some books that are meant to be read and others that are meant to be recommended to others to read i had a long line of the last named goods wished on me i reckon that nearly every growing boy passes through this heart-rending experience i recall distinctly how it was in my case as i was saying just now i had outgrown the sunday school style of juvenile reading there was a sunday school superintendent a tall pale willowy earnest young man with a voice that was about three fathoms too deep for a person of his dimensions and an infuriated adam's apple that was forever trying to beat his brains out and the sunday school superintendent had a way of patting you on the head and then conferring upon you little books of a dark blue and dismal aspect books that had woodcut illustrations in them which were apparently there to divert attention from the other contents and keep people from saying the story was the worst thing in the book he likewise was much given to conversation when he started talking he didn't know when to stop and nobody else knew when he would either he had one of those mouths that you could start running and go away for an hour or two hours and come back and find it still going i always considered the story of david and goliath a middling good exciting story until once when he told it to my class with interpolations of his own which took him and all of us all over asia minor on a hot day the roman augurs we were told used to laugh in each other's face when they meant in the forum but this sunday school superintendent of ours never laughed thus i take it illustrating one of the main differences between an augur and a boar he was serious until it was painful it was an open question with me which i hated most his pats upon the head or his little blue books or his sunday morning talks to the young 
all of them being cursed with the sameness which was maddening. I view the remains of the classics. Finally, though, I emancipated myself from these afflictions. And then, just about the time, I began whitewashing fences with Tom Sawyer and being cast away on desert islands with R. Crusoe, a flinty-hearted grown person came along and saddened my young life with a list of the books I ought to read right off unless I wanted to be a literary ignoramus and have the finger of scorn pointed at me. I believed it, too. Probably you believed it when the same thing happened to you. You were callow and trusting, and you took the list he gave you and you went to the public library, and the library unlocked the morgue department and toted out a lot of moldering remains, and you tottered homeward under a load of classical corpses that no really humane man would have asked a mule to haul. And then, full of enthusiasm and the ardor of youth, you've tackled them. But you weren't equal to the strain, or anyhow I wasn't. I had been told that Chaucer and Spencer would sharpen my literary palate, but they only seemed to affect my spelling adversely. I had on hand a large number of volumes, any one of which was excellently adapted for pressing wildflowers or holding a bulky door open. But to me they did not seem to be meant for reading purposes. Here I was, loading myself to the gunwales with Lord Bacon, when what I really desired to ascertain was whether Huck and Jim got back to the raft that time. The proverbs of Uncle Remus seemed to appeal to me where the moralizings of an old gentleman named Epictetus fell upon barren soil. Take Sir Isaac Walton now. I was interested in fishing, and I thought maybe, in addition to helping my literary taste, Sir Isaac might give me a few ideas touching on bait, but I never got very far beyond his preface. Right at the outset of his preface, I found this remark, quote, as no man is born an artist, so no man is born an angler, end quote. And I remarked to myself that this seemed to be pretty good doctrine. But only a little farther on, mind you, in the very first chapter, I struck on this, quote, angling is something like poetry. Men are to be born so, end quote. And to myself I said, this is no proper authority for me to follow. This person changes his mind too often. He's liable to tell me in one line that chicken liver is the correct thing for channel cats, and the next line that a catfish wouldn't take liver if you threw in trading stamps. I will now slip Sir Isaac into the discard. And I did it, and fell back into old Cap Collier, and in the very first chapter I ran into a situation that thrilled me clear down to the taproots of my being. Oh, gosh, those Sunday afternoons in the summertime, when the dusty streets drowsed in the heat, and the only sounds that came in at the window were the remarks of a Katie did correcting gossip in regard to herself. And the creak, creak, creak of warped hickory, as my little sister sat in a wooden swing, letting the cat die. Swinging in a swing was the only form of play permitted to the children of a strict Presbyterian household on a Sunday afternoon in those times. But if you swung too hard, it became sinful, and somebody made you stop it.
on our street the families were mainly of scotch descent not the highland scotch those fascinating persons who dressed up like plaid pen wipers with their knees outdoors and played the campbells are coming on a hot water bag with fishing canes stuck in it and followed the fortune of bonnie prince charlie until he ran out of that commodity but the genuine blue-stockinged lowlander type and we were reared to believe that the other place was located in the south and was a red-hot place full of flames and smells from somebody cooking ham where the first deputy devil came in at breakfast time wearing hoofs and horns and a napkin over his arm and leaned upon the chair of old nick and remarked pleasantly good morning boss how are you going to have your lost souls this morning fried on one side or turned over and it was impressed upon us that if we were bad we were going there and more especially if we were bad on a sunday which made it look like a mighty slim chance because no matter what you did on a sunday it was wrong and you should stop it right away even now every time i hear one of those old-fashioned swings creaking i think of those dear peaceful sunday afternoons that were each from two to three weeks long i see myself lying on a haircloth sofa that was specially designed for the purpose of stabbing a small boy through a pair of linen pants in four thousand separate and distinct places at once and i have lock on the human understanding in one volume balanced upon my stomach and i am trying to keep awake and in being assisted in doing so by an argus-eyed female relative who believed the young of the race should remain quiet of a sunday afternoon and improve the mind by substantial reading she was more than argus-eyed merely when it came to having that kind of an eye she had old argus the first looking like a cross between a mine mule and a mammoth cave fish and just about the time the lines upon the printed page began to run together and the horsehairs in the sofa began to lose their edge she would come and stir me up briskly before i had quite forgotten my troubles it was then and there i made up my mind that no person should be required to read the works of the great master minds of the english-speaking races until he was full-grown and his own boss by which time he would know better and personally i wish to say that i am still adhering to that resolution perhaps that is why i am not qualified to be a critic of literature but i know what i want in reading matter i merely ask that the authors shall stick to the original prescriptions and in justice to them i would state that thus far very few of them have disappointed me there is the southern wartime novel now a pronounced favorite of mine when done according to the regular formula there must be an old plantation preferably located in virginia and now laid waste by the iron hands and feet of war and the divisional arrangement of heroes and villains must be as follows heroes southern one northern one villains northern one southern one with this ground plan to start on the working out of the plot is comparatively easy to the point where peace descends upon a distracted country and a southern girl whose last name is generally bird though sometimes peyton or calvert is married to a northern hero frequently also a northern girl is married to a southern hero though this last is not demanded absolutely but may be regarded as optional with the author
also there must be an old family servant called uncle claiborne who declines to accept his freedom and run away with the rest of the slaves but continues to stick to the old place and furnish a touch of comedy relief for the sad chapters to round out the work properly and give it the correct historical finish there should be an eccentric old maiden aunt specializing in family trees and an irish sergeant of the union forces who is a diamond in the rough and as a foil to him a confederate corporal who refers to everybody as you all and has a sallow complexion and of course there must be a distant cousin of the family named lieutenant carey somebody who has black hair and eyes and seems to be sort of low in his mind and it is customary for him to be wounded about the middle of the book and die after lingering painfully for about two chapters and a half if instead of virginia the scene is laid in kentucky at least two breckenridges and one clay or two clays and one breckenridge are required to provide the right local color and if it is south carolina a few huguenot names should be sprinkled in here and there well if it is louisiana there must be some creole type to afford me the greatest amount of satisfaction a typical western story should be written by a young gentleman who has resided all his life in brooklyn new york i have noticed that the western fiction writers of the brooklyn school seem to endow their cowboy heroes with a more fascinating gift of persiflage and make them quicker at drawing their forty-fours and cause them to show a much deeper contempt for eastern people and eastern things than is the case when a western-born or western-reared author is writing the story similarly i prefer that my stories of new york newspaper life should be written by invalid maiden ladies residing in small towns in northern vermont as indeed i judge most of them are and i insist that they shall follow the correct orthodox lines to wit that there shall be a crab of a city editor nasty and mean who hates all the rest of the world and lives only for the paper and a supercilious highly superior star reporter who rolls his own cigarette and puts his legs up on his desk and despises beginners in the business and finally a scared shrinking green but brilliant young cub reporter who goes forth at eventide and single-handed turns up the biggest scoop of the year and then he comes staggering in barely half an hour before press time when the city room is in an uproar and the star has fallen down on his talented face and the old bear of a city editor is storming in despair because the paper is about to be beaten and the cub flings himself down at a typewriter and turns out the greatest story that ever was printed experience in such matters and study of the prevalent customs have taught me also that an english novel should start off with a young and timid curate eating strawberries on a lawn with somebody and at an early stage there should be introduced a maidservant answering to the name of dawson or meadows and an elderly housekeeper in a rustling black silk gown if the gown is not of black silk and if it fails to rustle this person is an impostor however to date it has always rustled in the desired manner these old favorites have never failed me yet but if they do i can always turn to a story by one of the forty thousand bright young people upon whom the mantle of o henry has smotheringly descended end of literature by irvin s cobb
read by Mary in Arkansas.